Nobody has more respect for women than I do. Nobody. Hillary Clinton wants to abolish it, believe me. She wants to abolish our Second Amendment. I think they didn't deny it. I don't think anybody denied it. Other presidents did not call, did write letters, and some presidents didn't do anything. Many people have come out and said I'm right. You really do have to ask yourself, where does it stop? Hello and welcome to Fallacious Trump, the podcast where we use the insane ramblings of ill douchebag to explain logical fallacies. I'm your host, Jim. And I'm your other host, Mark. A logical fallacy is an error in reasoning that results in bad or invalid arguments. The logical fallacy we're looking at this week is, the imposter fallacy. I say we, but I'm going to have to leave you in the capable hands of Jim, flying solo with the help from one or two others, in a have I got news for you kind of way, for the next several episodes. The work I'm currently doing means there'd be a conflict of policies in doing this, especially at the moment, but I'll be back to join in the fun again when this period is over. Meanwhile then, I'll hand you back over to Jim, to explain the imposter fallacy. Uh, Okay, so, obviously that wasn't Mark, that was an imposter, and yes, we are doing the imposter fallacy this week. The imposter fallacy, though, is... Uh, it's actually a fantasy that was named by friend of the show and author of Logically Fallacious, Bo Bennett. And it's when someone suggests or claims without enough evidence that people who are acting as part of your group are actually infiltrators from another group. They're actually people who are trying to make you look bad or trying to to cause you problems by pretending to be part of your group. Our first example is a tweet from Donald Trump on the uh, 22nd of August 2020 in which he said, The deep state or whoever over at the FDA is making it very difficult for drug companies to get people in order to test the vaccines and therapeutics. Obviously, they're hoping to delay the answer until after November 3rd. Must focus on speed and saving lives. So Trump is saying in that tweet that uh, the reason that the vaccine is coming slowly, uh, it wasn't coming slowly, it was coming relatively quickly, but in comparison to how quickly he'd been promising it, was because at the FDA, members of the deep state were causing problems. They were making it go slower. Now, the deep state, as far as Trump talks about it, and as far as as many right-wing voices talk about it, is people who are who are in the government who are working against Trump. They're almost always nameless, although sometimes people, when they do something which doesn't uh, or didn't um, fully support what Trump was trying to do, sometimes individual people were accused of being members of the deep state, including Bill Barr at one point. But what they are really, the the people that he's talking about, are what we in the UK would call civil servants. They're, they're government officials that have no party affiliation who do that job, whatever that job is, usually in administration or, in the case of the FDA, scientists. And they do that for whichever government happens to be in at the time. And they do that job because they want to do that job because they have expertise in that area not because they want to cause problems for some governments and help other governments but the argument that trump has is that these people are who are within his government who who are working for him who are in departments that are staffed and run by people who he has either hired or or through a, a hierarchy 
has control of are working against him. And it's it's just a, a paranoid conspiracy theory, basically. There's no evidence to suggest it. There was never any evidence to suggest that anyone working at the FDA was part of the deep state, or even that the deep state exists in that sense, that, that there is a group of people working against him. But it's a, it's a thing that he liked to say, which is a handy excuse for not being able to get stuff done. If you're saying, well, you know, I have to fight against not only the radical left, but also the the people within my own government working against me, it's an excuse for, for not being able to get stuff done. And sometimes it takes a much nastier, more nefarious kind of attack. And you see this when people talk about hoaxes, false flags, for example, with shootings, people like Alex Jones claim that uh, shootings weren't carried out by terrorists, but by leftists kind of trying to give right-wing terrorists a bad name in some way. And this was an extremely common thing that was said after January 6th, that the attack on the Capitol, the armed insurgency, was not Trump supporters, but to some extent at least, in, in some cases people say... It, it wasn't Trump supporters at all. It was Antifa or it was left wingers. Uh, and in and in some cases, they just say, you know, some of them were Antifa. Some of them were, were you know, the more violent ones, the ones that caused most of the problem. Um, they were Antifa. And they say it with no evidence really whatsoever. There was a, a tweet from Candace Owens on January 6th that said, my hope is that all violent agitators are arrested and their names are revealed publicly. Call it a hunch, but my guess is there are still Antifa thugs in the mix. There was a reply to Candace Owens' tweet from a guy called JJ Hare uh, who said, that's what I was thinking. This same guy was in the Capitol today was at a Black Lives Matter rally in June and the picture that they have is of um, Jake Angeli, the, the QAnon shaman. Um, he, a really, really bad choice of a person to, to hold up as an example because he's a very well-known, even before the 6th, was a well-known QAnon figure. And in fact, the picture that they used to prove their point was just a cropped picture that cut out the bottom half of him and his outfit where you could see he was holding a sign saying Q sent me and yeah he was at a BLM rally um, and he was um, on the other side of the rally counter protesting arguing against Black Lives Matter basically so the suggestion that the people who went into the Capitol were Antifa were Black Lives Matter were Democrats kind of it's it's really weird because because the idea that uh, people on the left would would try to get into the capital and cause a problem in order to try to overturn an election that they'd already won doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, there was a Facebook message going around after January 6th and um, it had gone around, in fact, several times before that. Um, the, the first... One that is mentioned on Snopes, at least, is from 2017 and then 2019. And then the the picture that they have on there is about November 4th, 2020, day after Election Day. 
The text on there says, Antifa comrades, on November 4th, don't forget to disguise yourself as patriots slash Trump supporters, wear MAGA hats, USA flags, three percenter insignias, a convincing police uniform is even better. This way, police and patriots responding to us won't know who their enemies are, and onlookers and the media will think there are Trump supporters rioting, so it's harder to turn popular opinion against us. So the claim there in that flyer is that they are um, that Antifa are going to riot on November fourth, but they're going to be dressed up as Trump supporters essentially. Uh, when I saw this going round on uh, after January sixth, I pointed out that one of the ways you can tell that this is obviously fake is that it says. At the beginning, don't forget to disguise yourself as patriots slash Trump supporters. And there is no way anyone on the left would describe Trump supporters as patriots. That is not how the left talks about those people. That is not how the left talks about right-wing terrorists. That is how the right talks about right-wing terrorists. So you can you can very easily see that this has been written by someone on the right. And it's, this is getting into a kind of Hall of Mirrors thing. It's it's a right-wing person pretending to be Antifa, claiming that Antifa will be pretending to be Trump supporters. The fact is that there wasn't any evidence uh, at the time and there hasn't been any evidence since that um, that Antifa were involved in any way. That, that members, that people who aligned themselves with Antifa were involved in any way in the insurrection. The pictures that went round uh, identifying individuals as members of Antifa strolling through the halls of Congress have been universally debunked. That all of the people who have been identified by the FBI and by members of the media and, and people like that have turned out to be uh, known Trump supporters, known kind of white supremacists, QAnoners uh, and people like that. There was an early claim by the Washington Times that a, a face recognition organisation had identified some of the people as Antifa. And in fact, Matt Gates talked about this on the on the floor of the of, of Congress, and um, that was not true at the time. The company that did face recognition software actually had identified some of the people, but the people that they'd identified were neo Nazis, and the Washington Times printed a, a retraction of that, and they did point out that actually that was never true, and the FBI have said. That there's no evidence of um, of Antifa being involved at all. It was a, a right-wing insurrection of Trump supporters incited by Trump on that day and, and for months beforehand um, that, that led to them storming the Capitol. And now is the time, I think, for Mark's British politics corner. So Mark's given me a couple of examples from British politics of the imposter fallacy. The first example is uh, following the EU membership referendum in June of 2016 and the many resignations of shadow ministers which followed Jeremy Corbyn faced a vote of no confidence in his leadership. Uh, the leadership he'd won with 59% of the vote only a year before in 2015. At that time, a thousand new members joined the Labour Party raising Labour's total membership to 503,143. In Parliament Square, Labour Party members expressed their support for him as leader. It's whether the PLP can survive without the members more than uh, whether Corbyn can survive because we've just had about enough of it. And the, his support is just as strong now as it was 
when we elected him with 59.5% of the vote. For youngsters, like 18 to 29 year olds, to be honest, he got the most turnout out of all. He will win back our traditional supporters. He's got the policies. He may not have what is commonly known as charisma for the popular press particularly, but he has got the policies and we think hopefully he's got the support. So uh, a fairly ordinary cross-section of people particularly of note is the mention of young people, 18 to 29-year-olds. Um, the first speaker also mentions the uh, PLP, which is the Parliamentary Labour Party. Following the vote of no confidence... Former Labour leader Tony Blair's old spin doctor, Alistair Campbell, appeared on a Portland communications panel to discuss how to choose a new Labour leader and describes those same supporters as imposters. And what's more, those people who were out on the Parliament Square the other day, uh, I mean, a lot of them belong to organisations which have existed to destroy the Labour Party. Well, I say to Jeremy Corbyn, go off and join them and leave the Labour Party to grown-ups who can win elections. Yeah, Alistair says a lot of them belong to organisations that existed to destroy the Labour Party. Mark says, uh, by this, I assume he means the likes of the so-called Trotskyite entryist loony left, which included militant tendency, socialist organiser and socialist action, which were got rid of by Blair's predecessor, Neil Kinnock, in the 80s, and then ousted further by Blair's new Labour in the 90s. So these imposters can't be the 22% of 18 to 39-year-olds who are Labour members because... They weren't even alive then, or if they were, they weren't able to vote at the time of Blair's elections. And Corbyn did go on to win the leadership vote again in September 2016, with an increased 61.8%, receiving 62,000 more votes than in 2015. So the questions that the interminable Labour Party infighting brings up are, when the so-called imposters outnumber the non-imposters, doesn't that make the non-imposters the minority? Therefore, shouldn't the party of the people give way to the majority rather than spend all its time and energy purging that worrisome majority so the so-called electable right-wing minority can be in charge again? All of this ongoing destruction of the only viable opposition party continues to be done at the expense of inflicting real damage on the actual minority right-wing party in power, the Tories. I think you're a fallacy. But I wanna know for sure. In the fallacy in the wild, we like to talk about the fallacy of the week from a non-political perspective, and this week it's been a little bit difficult to find examples of the imposter fallacy. Not because it doesn't exist, but because in fiction kind of false flags and people um, pretending to be other people, pretending to infiltrate uh, a group of their opponents is quite a good story. So it usually, when it when it is used in a story, turns out to be true. It turns out to be what's actually happening rather than just a kind of red herring. It would make quite an interesting red herring, but to do that you'd have to have an even more interesting real story. So it's it's actually often used as the real story. And that's the case in our first example, which was from South Park. And this is an episode where Cartman accuses Kyle of being responsible for 9-11. And so he gets involved in 9-11 conspiracies and truth and movement and stuff like that. And there is a, a new conspiracy announced towards the end of the episode. All the 9-11 conspiracy websites are run by the government. 
The 9-11 conspiracy is a government conspiracy. Oh, Jesus. Why would the government want people to think they caused 9-11? For government to have power, they must appear to have complete control. What better way to make people fear them than to convince them they are capable of the most elaborate plan on Earth? That's quite enough, Hardly. Don't believe what he says, boys. We caused 9-11. So, yeah, George W. Bush <laughs> appears at the end there to essentially reveal that uh, that what is he's being accused of is true, ultimately. But, yeah, the the reason that it's still a fallacy in this context is because when the, the man makes the accusation and says that um, actually those people who are uh, 9-11 conspiracy theorists aren't real 9-11 conspiracy theorists. They're the government pretending to be 9-11 conspiracy theorists to make the government look like they have enough power and control and organisation to pull that kind of thing off. When he makes that accusation, he's doing it without really any evidence, certainly without sufficient evidence to, to make that claim. They've, they've basically just decided that that's what's happened. Um, and... A similar thing happens in an episode of Archer called uh, The Papal Chase. And in Archer, it's a brilliant series, I love it. And uh, in this one, Archer and Isis have been employed to stop a plot to assassinate the Pope, um, which, as far as they're concerned, is being carried out by a rogue faction of the Pope's uh, protection service, the Swiss Guard. And now they're being chased through the streets of Rome by a number of Swiss guards in a Swiss guard car. Why aren't they on horseback? Because why would they be? Oh, right, right. Albertsmen are foot soldiers. Miss Scorsi, the bigger question is if they really are the Swiss guards. Why are they wearing Swiss guard uniforms, driving a Swiss guard car? Exacto. Holy sh... It's a false flag operation to make it look like the Swiss guard. Now, of course, that is what turns out to be the case. The person who would become Pope if the current Pope were to be assassinated has hired um, mercenaries, assassins, to pretend to be members of the Swiss Guard in order to assassinate the Pope. It's never made clear in the episode why it's important that it appears to be the Swiss Guard that have assassinated the Pope. That doesn't quite make sense. But but that's the the storyline. But while that turns out to be true, Lana figuring that out from the Pope questioning whether they are actually the Swiss Guard and um, Pam pointing out that, you know, if it, if the Swiss Guard were attempting to assassinate the Pope, why would they be wearing Swiss Guard uniforms and driving a Swiss Guard car? Isn't That's not really good evidence <laughs> because they were, they, were, they were expecting it to be the Swiss Guard who is attacking the Pope. So it's not surprising that they're wearing their uniforms and driving their car. That was what it you would expect with that situation happening. Because if they were a rogue faction of the Swiss Guard, they would still be wearing their uniforms in order to help them get close to the Pope. That would make sense. So, yeah, the 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 leap to working out that it's a false flag and deciding that they are actually not members of the Swiss Guard but imposters is is not done in a logical way. And this is a fallacy which is entirely dependent on context. If there is evidence, if there's sufficient evidence to lead you to conclude that um, someone is in fact an imposter, someone is 
pretending to be someone else in order to make that group of people look bad, then it's not a fallacy. Um, if there, if you are making that assumption without enough evidence, then you're then it's a fallacy, and you're doing it without using sufficient logic. Before we move on to fake news this week, I just want to tell you about an extra little thing that we are going to give our patrons uh, over the next few weeks. Mark and I are going to do a breakdown of Wonder Woman 1984, and the reason for this is arguably that um, the Pedro Pascal character in in Wonder Woman 1984 is is kind of Trump-based. He's a, a kind of charlatan uh, TV personality who who rises to power uh, in the US through just greed and wishing. And so we're, we're using that as an excuse to talk about Wonder Woman 1984 because, well, basically I saw it. I hated it. I fucking hated it. And so I made Mark watch it so that I had someone to talk to about how awful it is. And we thought, well, if we're going to talk about how awful it is, we might as well record it. And, you know, if if our patrons would like to listen to us talking, because we've, we've already talked about how awful a couple of other things were. So if you enjoyed listening to us talk about how awful ghosts can't do it and the social dilemma were, then maybe you'll enjoy us talking about how awful Wonder Woman 1984 was. And... I have to say that while the other uh, films, the the Bo Derek film, I think we did about three and a half hours on, um, and the and the Social Dilemma, we we did we talked about for a couple of hours. There's there's such a lot to hate in Wonder Woman 1984 that we well, let me just say we talked for a few hours and we didn't get halfway through the film yet. So if you want to listen, we are happy to talk about it and and let you listen to it by all means uh don't feel bad if you don't want to listen to it there's a lot but but we just oh god it's such a terrible film it's such a terrible film so if you think that sounds fun then it's there for you and it's an extra thing just for patrons if you if you think that it sounds like the exactly the kind of thing you want to listen to and you're not a patron yet then uh, you can join up and still get that and also get access to literally tens of hours, possibly in the realms of hundreds of hours now, of content about uh, Bob Woodward's book um, about Trump in the White House and a book about QAnon that we're going through now and various other things that we talk about only for our patrons. So you can go to patreon.com slash ftrump if that sounds like the kind of thing you'd be interested in listening to. So we're going we're gonna to play fake news, folks. I love the game. It's a great game. I understand the game as well as anybody. As well as anybody. Yes, it's time for fake news, the game where I read out three Trump quotes, two of which are real and one I made up. And this week, Frank has to figure out which one is fake news. Frank, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Um, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going? Yes, not, right? not bad, not bad. Um, Dad and I listened to Marsh's episode in the car the other day. Um, and as Excellent. he was going through his thought process, we were both like, well, you see, Jim has had this exact one and that's how he does it. <laughs> so let's see if we explore something back this week. Okay. So this episode, I've been talking a little bit about deep state. And so I was looking for, for kind of quotes about deep state. Cause I was sure that Trump had said some weird stuff about mm-hmm. that. And I found one speech that he'd given. Uh, which started off talking about the deep state and then just went off on a weird ramble for about 10 minutes. <laughs> so 
So all of these quotes, nothing to do, to do with the deep state. These are stuff that he was rambling about <laughs> yeah, these are my uh, when, when he started off talking about the deep state. And this was talking about his kind of first day, essentially, in D.C. after he was, um, after he was voted in. Wow, all right. So statement number one. I was in Washington in my entire life, D.C., 17 times. Never slept over, ever. Not once. And all of a sudden, I'm riding down Pennsylvania Avenue and I'm with a beautiful woman on my right named Melania. Think of this. And I had about 400 motorcycles in front of me and we're in a cavalcade of about 128 cars, most of them having about 15 submachine guns inside. Jesus. <laughs> cavalcade. Great word. Statement number two. I look out and there's all these people and a lot of police, a lot of military, and they all look so proud. They're saluting. Some of them have got tears in their eyes. It's a beautiful, it's like a movie, but better. And I turn to Melania and I say, do you believe this? And then I get to the White House, this incredible, like this really incredible place. I tell you, I've been in some amazing places. I own a lot of them. And it's one of the places. It's gorgeous. It's, it's one of the places. He's calling it a place this time. <laughs> Last time he couldn't decide whether it was a house or a building. All right. And... Uh, statement number three and i'm up at the incredible suite level and there's abraham lincoln's suite it's called the lincoln bedroom remember clinton used to lease it out to people for money they never changed do they remember when barbara streisand she's another beauty by the way but remember barbara streisand used to stay in that suite which was the only problem i had with it but tell me no i do like her voice i do i really do some of them i don't even like their voices but she used to stay there and i'm standing in the lincoln bedroom the history, the whole thing, the bed, the desk, the Gettysburg Address. Wow, he's a rapper. <laughs> well, very great clips here, or quotes rather. Cavalcade is a great word. Now, I'm thinking, does he know that word? But then also his repertoire of, of vocabulary often surprises me. Um, so, goodness... You know what? I'm going to go with number one, he said. I'm just straight off the bat this week. And, okay. oh, goodness. I, for some reason, do you believe this in statement number two sticks out quite a lot to me. Um, I feel like I recognize it. But I want number three to be real because it's so ridiculous. So I'm going to go with one and three are real. And, and two is made up. Okay. So which of one and three do you are you more convinced by? Hmm. I'm going to go with one. One, it's the cavalcade for me and the submachine guns. Okay. Well, number one is real. I was in Washington in my entire life, D.C., 17 times, never slept over, ever, not once. And... All of a sudden, I'm riding down Pennsylvania Avenue, and I'm with a beautiful woman on my right named Melania. Think of this. And I had about 400 motorcycles in front of me. And we're in a cavalcade of about 128 cars, most of them having about 15 submachine guns inside. So, yeah, he did say that. Weird flex. Brilliant. Hey, on a roll. Here we are. Weirdly specific numbers as well, isn't it? Just Yeah. Just about 128 cars. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's just, yeah, no no logic at all to why he would have... I'm, I'm curious as well. It's, it was a completely rambling type thing. Is it 15 submachine guns per car? He doesn't say. That's a lot of submachine guns in, in that case. But 
and how, how yeah. do they choose which yeah. of the 128 <laughs> has one anyway also 400 motorcycles that's that's a really impractical <laughs> cavalcade <laughs> yeah really loud um, as well probably yeah so uh, you also think that number three is real and number three is real oh my God. and i'm up at the incredible suite level and there's abraham lincoln suite called the Lincoln Bedroom. Remember, Clinton used to lease it out to people for money. They never change, do they? Remember when Barbara Streisand? She's another beauty, by the way. But remember, Barbara Streisand used to stay in that suite, but uh, which was the only problem I had with it. But tell me. No, but I do like her voice. I do. I really do. Some of them, I don't like even their voices. But she used to stay there, and I'm standing in the Lincoln bedroom. The history, the whole thing, the bed, the desk, the Gettysburg address. Wow. Uh-huh. Look at that. Barbara Streisand. So, I wonder what her reaction was, was to that. I wonder if she tweeted about it. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Wow. But he, I mean, after this, he then started talking about how Lincoln got, uh, was the only one that got even worse press than he did. And then he started talking about how Lincoln was quite depressed and his wife was quite depressed and then talked about Robert E. Lee. And it's just, it had nothing to do with what he started (laughs) at. And it just went, it kind of bunny hopped from from topic to topic in such a bizarre way. Wow. I'd love somebody to do an an analysis of his speech patterns, like a linguistic anthropologist or something would be really interesting. There is a fantastic book called Language in the Trump Era, oh, um, which which investigates that on a, from an academic uh, standpoint. We interviewed one of the um, the authors or one of the editors of the book um, a few months ago now. Oh, check uh, out the but episode. yeah, it's a great book. Fantastic. So, I might I'll put that on my birthday list. The, the, they uh-huh. the, they never change, do they? But it made me laugh. I thought that was quite ironic. Yeah, <laughs> money grabbing. Damn those money grabbers. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So uh, that means that, yeah, number two was, was fake news. And uh, you got that right. Well done. Wow. It's, it's, it's to be honest, not very different from what he, yeah, <laughs> he said. Yeah. He was talking about all of the the, the proud uh, police and military and, and everyone that, that he had that was looking after him. And yeah, it's bizarre. I enjoyed but, the, um, I own a lot of them. That was a really good touch. <laughs> wow, I can't believe I did it. Well, I can. I've been, yeah, you know, well I've been thinking. We've been plotting. Dad and I, you know, <laughs> what's the best way to do it? But please don't be disappointed. You know, I'm sure this is a, a fluke. Um, but wow. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. We will. Thank you for yeah. having me. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you for coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to text Dad right now. Be like, we got one. We did All it. Yes, it's time for the part of the show that this week at least is called Acquittal is Not a Logical Fallacy because Trump was impeached for the second time. Yes, the trial was held and of course, as everyone always knew what was going to happen, the Senate... Uh, no spoilers. Spoil- it's, we don't need a spoiler alert here because it, it was obvious from the beginning and if you haven't heard about this really, what have you been doing? Um, the Senate voted to acquit uh 57 to 43 which was a, a surprising number in a way seven senate republicans uh voted um to convict voted guilty 
on Trump's uh, incitement of insurrection, which was the most bipartisan impeachment vote in history. So there's that's something. But um, yeah, it was it was always extremely unlikely that they were going to reach the two thirds majority necessary to convict him. That was pretty clear early on. I mean, it was clear before we really got started. Um, but on the first day, we had um, a, a really impressive, well-prepared and well-argued um, impeachment manager's presentation from Jamie Raskin. He played a 13-minute video which showed the whole timeline of the day of the stuff that Trump was talking about in his speech on January 6th, the times at which he was sending various tweets and giving various messages to the insurrectionists alongside the stuff that was going on at the Capitol at that time. Um, and and it was really quite damning. <laughs> um, and they also argued very carefully about the uh, the constitutionality of being able to impeach an ex-president. And uh, Jamie Raskin brought up uh, this. He framed it in an extremely clever way of saying that, that claiming that it was unconstitutional to impeach him now for stuff he did in January creates a, a January exception, which basically is that um, something which would be impeachable the entire rest of the time someone was president, um, they get to do without any consequence whatsoever in their in in the January of their final term as, as president, which obviously is uh, not OK and it's not what the framers designed and it's not what um, anyone sensible would think would be a good way of doing things. Joe Neguse, um also talked about the constitutionality. He talked about the precedents that have been set of people who have been impeached after they've left office and and talked about how, you know, it's about um, the process. It's about preventing him from holding office again. It's not just it's, it's not just for removal. And they made an extremely good case. And um, then the president's lawyers spoke and, I mean, the thing about the president's lawyers is that the legal team that Trump had before quit two weeks before the um, the impeachment trial, uh, partly because apparently they were being told that that what he most wanted them to argue was that the election was was stolen from him. But also, it's come out more recently that it because he there was an argument about pay. Um, Butch Bowers, the uh, Trump's lawyer at the time had essentially told Trump that for him alone, him his own legal fees were going to be $250,000. Uh, Trump thought that was brilliant, that was perfect amount, but Trump thought that that was for everything. And so when Butch Bowers gave him a, a kind of invoice for $3 million, which was for him, the other lawyers, and research, and all of the other expenses and everything, um, Trump basically said well i'm not paying that and so they said well we're not being your lawyers then <laughs> and so uh he had to get lawyers at short notice who and he's already remember scraped the barrel down as far as sydney powell and rudy giuliani because any lawyer who is any good at all won't work for trump because first of all he won't pay you and he's toxic as fuck so 
from what I can tell, Trump like found some lawyers advertised on a bus bench outside Mar-a-Lago and called them and ended up with David Schoen, Michael Van Der Veen and, and um, Bruce Caster. And Bruce Caster w- was up first and he fucked up immediately. He's, he, he's by just in, in introducing himself, he said, my name's Bruce Caster and I'm the lead prosecutor. No, oh, no, wait, I'm uh, lead counsel in, on the defence. So, I mean, frankly, again, because it was always clear that um, that Trump was going to be acquitted by a jury that included many of his co-conspirators, he uh, they didn't really need lawyers at all. I mean, they could have got away with um, having a just a a poodle come and shit on the the lectern and say the defence rests and the the outcome would have been largely the same and and Bruce Caster didn't do a a much better job than that poodle really because after after forgetting whether he was which side he was on of the case he just started talking about what a great job the house managers had done and and how basically you know how impressive their case was and how uh, they, he said, "I'm going to be frank with you. Um, we were very impressed with how how well they did, and we've changed what we were going to do because of what a good case they put forward." So, and this is just the opening statements. So, and and then his rebuttal was so. I mean, he it was meaningless. It was meandering. He talked about a a, a congressperson who. Uh, was annoyed about a thing they saw on TV and he couldn't remember what it was and he didn't mention who she was or what relevance that had to anything. Uh, he t- he talked about how uh, Nebraska, for some reason, not sure why he talked about Nebraska, was a, a very a judicial thinking place. And he, he owned, in his 50-minute... Um, opening statement rebutting the the house manager's opening statements he only mentioned Trump like three or four times he barely talked about the case he talked about lots of other stuff and apparently Trump was absolutely furious about this um, and then at, uh, at the end he he basically just said um, and you know so now we're going to talk about uh, jurisdiction and I'm going to get David Schoen to come and talk to you about the the legality, the legal side of jurisdiction, because because we feel that you know that's how we should start this now, because because um, the the house managers put forward such a strong case. It was it was super weird, and it basically he didn't appear to be um, not even organised is much too strong a word. He didn't appear to be prepared in the slightest bit. It was like he had forgotten that that was the day he was supposed to be defending the president in an impeachment trial. And and he woke up and his wife said, aren't you supposed to be going to D.C. today? And he went, oh, fuck, and then went and just just vamped for almost an hour. It was amazing. But it doesn't matter. None of it matters. 
because because none of it had any the only the effect it had was that um after the after the opening statements on the first day they took a vote to decide whether the trial was constitutional that they'd taken essentially when they they voted on whether to dismiss the case uh, or not and and they they got one extra um republican senator to vote uh, in favour of constitutionality, six Republican senators voted that it was constitutional, and the one that that, that kind of switched over to their side was Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, and uh, he said that the reason he voted in that direction was because Trump's legal team was disorganised, and he said, as an impartial juror, I'm going to vote for the side that did the good job. And yeah, I mean, it's I kind of it's upsetting that it's that it's surprising that a Republican senator would actually be swayed by that kind of thing. But good that it did have that effect, at least on one of them. Um, and and it should, because the the difference between those two sides was absolutely stark. It was amazing. Uh, on day two, um, more videos were shown uh, more footage that hadn't been seen before, including footage of U- uh, Officer Eugene Goodman uh, kind of steering the mob away from uh, the Senate and and warning Mitt Romney um, to to get out of the way when he was otherwise going like towards the the encroaching mob. Um, it, it seems almost certain that that Eugene Goodman essentially saved Mitt Romney from what would have been potentially a dangerous situation um there there were clips in fact played throughout the next couple of days uh the day two and three the house managers played clips um really showing the uh the link between the things that trump had said uh showing the rally goers um the rioters the insurgents um talking about how they would they were there because they felt that the president had invited and encouraged them to go there um and and they ended they closed uh by Jamie Raskin saying that uh they need to convict obviously because um he'll do it again essentially he said that if there's any is there any political leader in this room who believes that if he's ever allowed by the senate to get back into the oval office donald trump would stop inciting violence to get his way would you bet the lives of more police officers on that? Obviously, the response uh, a couple of days later from 43 Republican senators was, yeah, yeah, I'll bet the lives of other police officers on that, yeah. And uh, so the day four, the, the Trump team put forward their... Um, I mean, technically, I suppose it's called defence, but... Um, really, it was more just kind of angry ranting, especially by uh, by Van Der Veen, who mostly seemed to be annoyed that he was there in the first place. Um, and when he was arguing about whether they were going to have uh, witnesses, was saying that they would, if they had witnesses, they'd have to depose them, and they wouldn't depose them. Uh, in DC, they wouldn't oppose them over Zoom. They'd, they'd they'd have to go to his his office in Philadelphia uh, to do that. Um, and and basically, the Senate was just laughing at him. 
and he was getting angrier and angrier. At one point, he actually had to kind of had to stop and get someone else to do some talking because he was getting too angry. And let's just say the the, the impeachment managers who, if anyone has a right to be angry, the impeachment managers had that right and they did not get angry. They didn't lose their temper when they were putting forward their case. Um, there was a point on day uh, five, it was the end of day four, beginning of day five, I believe, where... There was a vote on whether to have witnesses. The the Trump defense team had made the claim that Trump didn't know that Pence was in danger uh, or what was going on at the Capitol, really. Um, They couldn't answer a question about when he knew about the breach. And uh, Representative Jamie Herrera-Butler from Washington uh, said that she was aware of a... uh, She had said this separately... And and had talked to the impeachment managers, the House managers about it, um, that that she was aware of the of the conversation between House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Trump during the attack, which completely disproved what Trump's defense team were saying. And so, uh, when there was a vote held to have witnesses or not, initially, um, that vote went in the Democrats' favor to have witnesses, which was a bit of a surprise. But more of a surprise for many people watching was the fact that a couple of hours later, they had decided as a whole, as as the Democrats and Republicans together, to not have witnesses, actually. And at first that was a bit confusing because it seemed like the Democrats had won um, and then had just given up on what would have been a, a positive thing. But it depends on your perspective, the perspective of... Uh, the House managers at the time was that what they really wanted was to get the testimony from Representative uh, Jamie Herrera Butler and um, to to directly rebut that claim that Trump didn't know what was happening or or when the uh, Capitol had been breached or whether Pence was in danger. Um, and essentially, the defence team stipulated to that. They they said that they were happy to have her testimony read into the um, the record, and and so the evidence that the Democrats wanted to get out of having um, a a witness in that sense was already on the record. The argument from them uh, after the fact was that the Republicans were going to. Uh, call many witnesses and cause a lot of disruption. They were threatening basically to uh, drag it out to disrupt confirmation hearings and nominations and things that that would lead to difficulty for Biden getting stuff done and ultimately to to cause this to to just go on and on. It's a judgment call. I wonder if actually having it in the news might have been a better thing I don't think ultimately and this was again I think a big part of their decision making process um, that it would have made any difference I don't think it would have swayed probably any but certainly enough Republican senators in the direction of uh, voting to convict so ultimately getting the evidence in the record, getting it out there and and then allowing the the business of the Senate to continue 
was the the choice that they made and ultimately it prob- it really realistically wouldn't have made any difference and uh yeah at the end the result was the result we all expected going in that uh that 43 republican senators just don't think that um inciting an insurrection is sufficient to uh, convict many of them hid behind the argument of of um a lack of due process or a unconstitutionality of of impeaching an ex-president mitch mcconnell gave a a statement afterwards ultimately saying yes trump is absolutely guilty he totally did it but the trial was unconstitutional so my hands are tied of course he was the one who tied his hands by putting the trial off until after trump was out of office but you know that's the kind of thing you expect from mcconnell And finally, some things we really don't have time to talk about. Back when presidents didn't commit crimes on a daily basis, media pundits had to find other reasons to yell about them, like wearing a tan suit or ordering posh mustard. And now that presidents aren't committing crimes on a daily basis anymore, Tucker Carlson, who, remember, you are legally required not to take seriously, has decided that his best argument against Joe Biden is his obviously faked 44-year marriage to Jill. So it's official. The Biden's affection is totally real. It's in no way part of a slick PR campaign devised by cynical consultants determined to hide the president's senility by misdirection. (laughs) Not at all. Their love is as real as climate change. Tucker's apparently unaware that he's just proving to everyone that he's never experienced genuine affection from another human. Listen to the anger in his voice at the very thought of a wife being considered an equal. No, ladies and gentlemen, Jill Biden is not Joe's caretaker. She isn't his nurse. She's his fully equal romantic partner. Fuck me. Nearly 500,000 people have died and millions more have had their lives upturned, largely because of the GOP's negligence. But they'll have you believe the real enemies are the liberals impinging on your freedom by asking you to wear a mask. And true to Republican form, don't do anything for your constituents, just blame the other party. The big freeze in Texas has brought the power grid to a standstill and left 4.3 million without heat or light. And has Republicans not asking questions of Texas Governor Greg Abbott as to why the state wasn't prepared? Rather, they've encouraged Abbott to go on TV and blame the Democrats' Green New Deal. Because windmills don't work when they's frozen, y'all. Problem is, renewables only account for 7% of Texas's energy. And the state isolated its power grid from that of the rest of the nation because it didn't want to be subject to federal regulations. So no power available from beyond the borders and the power supply is deregulated and underinvested in the private hands of owners who are more interested in generating profit than energy. And of course, most of the gas power turbines providing the other 93% of energy froze solid and stopped working. But Abbott doesn't care. He's already planning to run for a third term in 2022. He's probably going to win, too. They'll have to pry that state from his cold, dead hands. Could happen. And while Texans shiver and starve, Texas Senator Ted Cruz decided it was the perfect time for a holiday in Cancun. So he and his family packed up and headed to the airport, leaving their ironically named poodle Snowflake to freeze in their cold, dark mansion. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those meddling people at the airport who filmed him and tweeted about it, and the people on his flight to Mexico who confirmed it was definitely him. Cruz sprang into action, blaming his kids for wanting to go in the first place and lying that he was just being a good dad and had always planned to head straight back to Texas after dropping them off at the Ritz-Carlton. 
Once people easily proved that he only changed his return flight after people pointed out what an arsehole he was being, he accepted that the trip was a mistake. Meanwhile, Beto O'Rourke has been working to connect Texans to water, food, transportation and shelter, and New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has launched a fundraiser which has raised over $5 million to provide desperately needed supplies. Just as no one else could quite believe that Mayor Quimby, uh, sorry, Texas Senator Ted Cruz decided to fly to the heat of Mexico rather than support his frozen constituents. Some Texans themselves, with their tiny torpid minds chilled by devotion to the cold-hearted Republican Party, can't believe their snow is real. They're making conspiracy theory videos go viral on TikTok, Facebook and Twitter. Videos that say the severe snow was actually fake and government generated, like that's a thing, as part of a sinister plot instigated by shadowy elites. This goes out to our government and Bill Gates. Thank you, Bill Gates, for trying to fucking trick us that this is real snow, a woman says in one video as she holds a cigarette lighter to a snowball over her bathroom basin. Of course, they're so busy uploading, they've no time to watch the science writer Phil Plate's 2014 video from the last time it happened in Georgia. As the snow melts, the remaining snow absorbs the water. That's why it doesn't appear to drip. The snowball becomes a slush ball. Either that, or they didn't film the bit where their snowball actually melted. Well, what's the use of confirmation bias if you can't blame the government for what your state is shit at dealing with? Q is dead, and long live the QAnoners. As someone who wrote a best-selling book about how conservative voices are being silenced, you wouldn't expect Don Jr. to understand, well, anything really, and you would not be disappointed. Today, he tweeted, Apparently the Muppets have now been cancelled. There's nothing these psychos won't destroy. Liberalism is a disease. As a lifelong Muppets fan, I was surprised that we'd cancelled them, until I checked and found out that, yeah, we didn't. In fact, since the original run in the 70s, almost every rerun, home video release or DVD release has been incomplete thanks to rights issues, missing episodes, removed songs, etc. Now, Disney Plus has restored all the episodes to their original content and the Muppets are more freely and more completely available for watching and re-watching than ever before. Whatever the opposite of cancelling is, that's what's been done to the Muppets. So what the fuck is Junior talking about? Well... Disney Plus have added a few seconds of disclaimer to the front of 18 out of the 120 episodes to point out that they contain negative stereotypes of people or cultures, but that they decided to leave that content in to acknowledge it, learn from it, and spark conversation. I think Jim Henson would be proud. OK, you know how Trump gave up all his business interests to concentrate on being an altruistic, people-focused, selfless leader rather than find ways to make his presidency earn as much money as he could for the Trump organization in the ultimate expression of corporate America? Uh, no, no, I forgot that's what he did do. Anyway, doesn't matter. He's apparently giving all that up again because the US has been a corporation since former President Franklin D. Roosevelt ended the gold standard in 1933 when the value of the dollar was no longer pegged to gold. And as one TikTok user wrote, listen, patriots, y'all can relax. We're going back to being a republic, not a corporation, come March. And yep, you guessed it. That means Trump will be president again. This nonsense, with no apparent mention of votes or anything, is brought to you by the Clutching at Straws Department of the Amalgamated Batshittery of QAnon and the traditional fuckwittery of the Sovereign Citizens Movement. When all the nutjobs start to coalesce, do we need to get less concerned or more concerned? 
Yes, Trump has been acquitted by his co-conspirators, but some juries might not be so kind. And prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, have officially launched a criminal investigation into Trump's attempts to overthrow the election, including his call to Brad Raffensperger, demanding he find more votes. Meanwhile, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which is investigating Trump and the Trump Organization for criminal tax fraud, has hired white-collar prosecutor Mark Pomerantz, a high-profile lawyer who helped bring down mobsters including John Gotti. And today, the Supreme Court declined Trump's final request to stop a New York grand jury from seeing his tax returns. But I'm sure they're totally fine. I mean, he's just been fighting like hell to stop anyone from seeing them for four years because they're so damn legal, probably. In British politics this week, we continue to live in a wheel within a wheel, in a circle ever turning, from lockdown where case numbers drop till senior Tories persuade Boris to remove restrictions too soon against scientific advice. So we all go out again and case numbers rise, then senior Tories persuade Boris not to impose restrictions too soon against scientific advice and far too many lives are lost until we all go into lockdown again too late. Like a record player, round, 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 round. Meanwhile, when found guilty of doing so this week, Matt Hancock said it's okay that the government broke the law, it did, for awarding contracts to their mates and their wives with no tendering process early on because it solved the PPE shortage. It didn't. All the PPE that was procured slash made slash hastily cobbled together was not fit for purpose, caused unnecessary deaths, diverted funds away from the NHS and delayed any procurement possible through normal channels. I had hoped to suffocate myself with this government-issued plastic bag. But like everything else, there's no end to it. So that's all the bad arguments and faulty reasoning we have time for this episode, and I'd like to thank my guest presenter, Frank. You'll find the show notes at fallaciousTrump.com, and if you hear Trump say something stupid and want to ask if it's a fallacy, our contact details are on the contact page. If you think we've used a fallacy ourselves, let us know. And if you've had a good time, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash ftrump. Just like our straw man level patrons, Cass Tui, Mark Reiki and Amber R. Buchanan. Thank you so much everyone. We really appreciate your support. You can connect with those awesome people as well as us and other listeners in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash fallacious trump. All music is by The Outbursts and was used with permission. So until next time on Fallacious Trump, we'll leave the last word to the Donald. That's right, go home to mommy. Bye. Bye! What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hero.co